Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue from the Gospel of Matthew, Pastor Tim will take us through a teaching where Jesus asks us to consider how we see the world through eyes of scarcity or through eyes of abundance. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he brings us another teaching from Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. All right, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and hopefully this speaks to some of what we're feeling too. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, uh, it'll continue. The thought is actually one thought that we'll bring back next week, but let's just stop here. Um, Jesus says a lot in here, and he starts by talking about money, and he ends by talking about money. So clearly this is connected. And yet, if you stand back from this, you have to ask, like, what is Jesus talking about here? What, like, what is his What's the point of his teaching? It kind of feels a bit esoteric, a bit floaty. Like, Jesus, what what are you trying to say? Uh, This also is one of those passages that um, has been used in church services often. Um, Often it's a someone like me standing up uh, on a stage in a church, behind a pulpit maybe in a church, and the, the sermon typically goes like this. Wealth is bad. Store up your treasures in heaven, which means give us your money. Not to be cynical, but that's kind of how we treat the passages. This is the fundraising church campaign 101 passage. Like just just wealth is bad. You shouldn't want wealth. You should store up your wealth in heaven, which i.e. means the church. Uh, And I hate that we've done that to this passage. Because what Jesus is doing here is truly, truly brilliant. Uh, It's truly, it's layered and it's deep and it takes some some thinking. Um, But what Jesus is doing here is offering a way to see life. And uh, Jesus is offering a a way to think about all of it. And so so I want to talk about that. Uh, Now, uh, if you stand back from the passage... I thought I'd bring up my whiteboard. I haven't done this in a while. We'll see if it helps. Uh, if, you, if you stand back from the passage, Jesus seems to connect money with eyes. Money with eyes, which he then connects money with eyes. Let's make that a little better. Pretty good eye. Money with eyes, which he then connects with light. Does that look like a light bulb? Yeah. Okay. And darkness. Uh, gotta be careful with the whiteboard. I drew a light bulb once and everyone started laughing and I couldn't figure out why until after the service. And I was like, oh, that's why you were laughing. Uh, 
<laughs> Careful with the whiteboard. Uh, Jesus connects money with eyes with light and dark. You stand back from the whole thing and say, what, Jesus, what is your purpose? Uh, and then he comes back to money at the end. So clearly, somehow this is connected. Maybe if it's not just about money, maybe what Jesus is talking about here is ophthalmology, right? The, the weird teaching about eyes. What, Jesus, what, like, if you have good eyes, you'll see light, and bad eyes, you'll see darkness. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is just go check, go to your eye doctor, um, go, go talk to the boars, they'll get you straightened up, get you some glasses. Like, that's what you got to do. Like, this is about eyesight. Okay, you know that's not the case. So then you step back and say, okay, well, hang on. Maybe the secret is, anybody else, as you're reading through this passage, uh, the little word vermin, Right? Anybody else as you're reading through it's like, really? Really? Vermin? What's, uh, anybody else think, this is, this is what I had to do. Maybe you know what this is, but I had to Google. I had to, I had to consult with Rabbi Google, um, although I've been also consulting with Rabbi DuckDuckGo lately, but it doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, but Rabbi Google, what is a vermin? And if you look up uh, what is a vermin or what kind of vermin is Jesus referencing when he talks about vermin, there is some debate. Some have argued that the kind of vermin Jesus is referencing is a grasshopper. Uh, that Jesus is talking about grasshoppers. Others have said, and they make their case for why grasshoppers. Others have said, oh, it's probably worms. And they make their case for why worms. Others have said, no, 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 no. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about vermin, Jesus is talking about a weevil. You know what a weevil is? You want to know what a weevil is. Let me show you a weevil. That's a weevil. Cute little fellas, aren't they? Weevil. Uh, Now, I want to make the argument that oh, the vermin Jesus is referencing mice. <laughs> oh, hey guys. Uh, I want to make the argument. <laughs> Oh, I want to make the argument. Now, uh, that forces you to ask another layer of questions. Okay, if Jesus is talking about treasure, and don't let your treasure be destroyed by vermin, mice, weevils, worms, uh, uh, locusts. Like if Jesus said, don't let your treasure, what kind of treasure is Jesus talking about? To his world, what kind of, is Jesus talking about your golf clubs? In this passage, no, no. Is Jesus talking about your... Um, is Jesus talking about your Manny Petty? No, uh, no. Uh, is Jesus talking about your Chevy Silverado? No, uh, no. What is Jesus? You have to stand back and say, okay, Jesus, what are you referencing when you talk about treasure? When you connect treasure to the things that can be destroyed by moth and vermin, what is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus seems to link these two things. What is Jesus Referring to now, maybe there's a clue in another passage or another story Jesus tells. If you have a Bible, turn to me to Luke 12. Luke 12, and Jesus, beginning at verse 16, and Jesus told them this parable: the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, "What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops." Then he said, "This is what I'll do: I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns." 
Uh, And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Drink, eat, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So what is the treasure, according to this other parable, that seems, can we acknowledge, he talks about laying up treasure. It seems like they're very closely connected. What is the treasure that can be destroyed by weevils or Mickey Mouse that Jesus is referring to? Food. Food. Jesus links money with food. Now, what, what, get asked the questions. Why is this, why does Jesus take this so serious? Jesus, this is actually the only time, the only time in our Bibles that Jesus will say something is so bad that this man's life will be demanded of him that very night. This, this, I have to store up for myself this stuff, I gotta build bigger barns, is so bad that his life will be demanded from him that very night. Why? What is so bad about this? Now I look at this and I think, um, okay, so what he wants to do is he says, I got to build bigger barns to store my surplus stuff. Essentially, I got to store up my stuff. How is that bad? Uh, If, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got extra food in my cupboards, right? You probably have extra food in your cupboards. I don't see that as bad. If if there is a two-for-one sale on Fruit Loops at Meijer, I don't think bad. I think Dutch. Like, this is opportunity. Uh, my kids are going to eat them eventually. I might as well store them up and uh, we'll use them. Why is this so bad? Because you and I hear this and we think, well, that's not that. Is it really? It seems, wis- seems kind of wise, actually, to store up. Um, and so what is so bad about this? I propose to you that what is so bad to Jesus has to do with how the man frames the problem. The man says, what can I do? I have an extra surplus of stuff. I don't know what to do with it. Where will I store it? I better build bigger barns because I got to store it there. But then there's the vermin and they're going to eat it. But I got to build bigger barns because I can store it there. I propose to you the problem with the man um, and the reason Jesus says this is so bad, his life is demanded that night, has to do with the question. Why? Because Jesus The scriptures have already told people who have an excess where to store their excess. If you have a Bible, well, I'll I'll just quote it for you. This one will take. Uh, Leviticus 19. By the way, if you're thinking um, Leviticus 19, it almost feels like the Sermon on the Mount is connected to Leviticus. It almost feels like the Sermon on the Mount is commentary on Leviticus 19. We we talked about that. Uh, So much of this is uh, commentary on what does it look like to be a priest in the world. Uh, Leviticus 19 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, do you catch what Jesus says here uh, or what Leviticus says here? When you harvest your crops, leave the corners. Harvest your field, but leave the corners of your fields for the poor. That's theirs. Uh, and when, you, um, when you're harvesting your grapes, when you're harvesting your figs, when you're harvesting your olives and you beat the tree and the fruit falls, gather on first pass as much as you can gather, but leave whatever remains. That's for the poor. Where do you store your surplus? 
You leave it for the poor. Um, kind of thing works like this. You have your field, which by the way, God says leave the corners. Um, but what doesn't God say? They picked it up. What doesn't God say? How big are the corners? So if, the, if God says leave the corners, I'll leave that. There you go, poor. <laughs> Don't spend it all in one place. Uh, I'll leave that. That's the corners. Uh, but the idea wasn't, so if God were to say, here's how big I want you to leave the corners. Um, and we do this, sometimes we do this, right? Like you're supposed to give 10%. Uh, and so it becomes like this new law that we have. And it's a, good, it's a good starting spot, but it becomes like this new law. Like you have one, and then once I get to 10%, I've, I've done it. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And so we create kind of a rule system around this thing. But God, when he has the opportunity to give a rule system, doesn't. The idea was supposed to be that, okay, let's imagine you have a field. And uh, this field, um, there's, a, there's a line in the Old Testament again and again. It says, don't move the ancient boundary markers. The idea was from generation to generation, you pass down your field. Your job was to keep the field. And so let's imagine you have a field. It was great-grandpa's, um, great-grandpa's, great-great-grandma's, and it was passed down to mom and dad, or grandpa and grandma, then passed on to mom and dad, and now it's yours. Now you're new to this, and you're kind of worried that you might not do this right. So that first year, you, you knowingly just keep the corners really tight. That's for the poor. But then the year comes, and you know what? You have excess. You have extra. So what are you supposed to do? Well, next year, you know what, God? I am going, you were, you were good to me last year, so I'm gonna trust you with bigger corners. And that year comes, and guess what? The food's there. So next year, okay, I am going to trust you, God, with bigger corners. And the next year, it comes, and sure enough, the food's in. So that following year, you say, God, Oh, you have been good to me. I am going to trust you with the biggest corners in my field. And then guess what happens? That year, uh, it's a famine. Uh, it's a pandemic. Um, that year, like, it doesn't work out. You don't have enough food. What do you do? Well, your neighbor's plot, they're also playing this game. They're also in the game of how do we trust God? And so I go over to him and say, I mismanaged my money this year. I gave away too much to the poor. Can I have some? I'll do better next year. Can I have some? And they say, absolutely. Um, in an ideal world, they, they lend you some and you make it through the year. The system was about how do we trust God with as much as we can so we can care for as many as we can. The question was how can we build bigger corners? That's how God designed it. Not how can we build bigger barns? Why is Jesus so critical of this man? He's asking the wrong question. The question was never how can I build bigger barns, but how can I build bigger corners? Now, this still leaves the question, what do we do? What do we do with this whole thing about eyes? What is this? I can see how this is connected to this. That makes sense. I can see how the money and vermin and food is connected to barns and connected to fields. I see that. But how is any of this connected to eyes? I'm glad you asked. If you have your Bible, uh, actually, somebody look up Proverbs 22.9. I'm going to have you read it. Uh, Proverbs 22.9. Somebody who can read in their outdoor voice. Oh, it's on the screen. You can just read it off the screen. Somebody who can read an outdoor voice. The generous will themselves be blessed when they share their food with the poor. 
That was good. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Uh, now, there's this proverb. Uh, proverbs are this ancient book of wisdom literature. Ideally, the, the idea behind the proverbs are they're all like these little one-liners that a parent could pass down to their kids. So you are walking with your, your, your son, your daughter, and you are able to say to them, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. That passage is about this. They build bigger corners. But there's something else going on in that passage that's fascinating. Uh, that word generous in Hebrew is made up of two words. Ayin tova. Ayin tova. Tova means good, and ayin means eyes. I know. Ayin tova. Good eyes. Good eyes. The, the phrase generous well, make, is trying to capture a Hebrew idea of what does it look like to have good eyes, to see the world through a generous worldview. The, the person with a generous worldview looks out at their world and says, do I have enough for the poor among, among me? Now, what's really brilliant about what Jesus does here, uh, what's truly incredible about what Jesus does here, is uh, there's a rabbinical teaching tool that Jesus employs in this moment. It's a, uh, it's, it's a way of reading scripture that takes all of the scripture into account as you're trying to make a point. The idea in the Jewish world was known as a kesher, K-E-S-H-E-R. Um, others refer to it as stringing pearls. The idea was you would take two words that were were shared in a passage close to each other, and you would grab those two words and you would put them together to make a statement, uh, trying to get at the heart of what God is trying to say. So you grab two words that are in common and you pull them together. Jesus, when he talks about um, healthy eyes and unhealthy eyes, as it's translated in our passage, grabs two ideas, one from Proverbs 22 and one from Proverbs 28. Let me read you Proverbs 28, 22. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Okay, so now we have two passages. It's almost like a, a point counterpoint. One is about generosity. One is about stinginess. One is about investing in others. The other is about investing in yourself. Now, that word stingy is made up of two Hebrew words. I know. Uh, two Hebrew words. The word ayin. Ayin means what again? I. And the word ra'ah, which can be translated bad or evil. A good eye, a good eye, and a bad eye. Jesus grabs two ideas, he pulls them together, what is known as a kesher or stringing pearls. And Jesus says this the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are Ayin tova, good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, ayin ra'ah, bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What seems like an esoteric thing Jesus is saying is actually a brilliant commentary about how to live. Here's the big idea. How you see the world matters. If you see the world through a lens of ayin tova, light, It'll allow you to lead a life of generosity. The question will be, how big can we leave our corners? If you see the world through ayin ra'a, a bad eye, an eye of darkness, it will 
cause you to ask the question, who's coming for my stuff? How do we protect the stuff? There's always vermins to break into my stuff. There are two ways to look at life. You can see your stuff through the lens of Ayin, Tova, or you can see your stuff through the lens of Ayin, Ra'ah. Jesus is offering a brilliant commentary about life. Now, I see that, and my natural, my guess is some of you are in the same spot as I look at this. Uh, You have the same question I have. How? 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 Sounds good, Jesus. You're telling me to be optimistic. Awesome. I'm optimistic. But how? When the world around me is as bad as it is, how? Don't just tell me to be optimistic and trust and believe. And how? 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 What do you do? What do you do when world pandemics are followed by world war? What do you do? What do you do when pandemics are followed by wars? Can't just be just just be optimistic. Put a smile on. Turn that frown upside down. Like it, like what? Do, how? How do you actually live in a way that you do this in a world that feels so broken by heartache, disease, loss, loneliness? How do you do it? Now it's almost as though Jesus anticipates your question. It's almost as though Jesus knows exactly what you were thinking. Um, it's almost as though Jesus is brilliant, and you should consider following him. Uh, Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are ayin, tovah, good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are ayin, ra'ah, bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus talks about light and darkness. So you, you can connect money in this. That makes sense. You can connect this with eyesight. That makes sense. And it makes sense that Jesus would talk about bigger fields and bigger corners and bigger barns, but what about this light-dark piece? This, I think, is brilliant. Um, Jesus is, so not only is, are you still with me? Are you still together? Okay. Uh, I was telling somebody that two weeks ago I was preaching, and I simultaneously noticed that everyone got bored at the same time. Literally, everyone got bored. I bored you all. It's a, it's a, that's a, that's a skill. Uh, I bored you. <laughs> I was like, I got to tell a story or something. I got you guys get back. I got to get you back. All right. Um, what was I saying? Uh, oh, Jesus, Jesus employs a uh, rabbinical teaching model called Kesher, stringing pearls. But um, one of my teachers says that this is one of the most brilliant teachings Jesus ever did because he's doing so much in such a few words. Jesus not only does Kesher, but in this passage, Jesus employs a second rabbinical teaching method. One, this one's way more popular, way more common throughout the New Testament. A principle known as the principle of first mention talked about this a little bit here before. The principle of first mention. Now, the principle went like this. Uh, If there is a word, a phrase, or an idea that kind of feels out of place, ask the question, does this word, phrase, or idea show up anywhere else in the Bible? In particular, is this word, phrase, or idea, uh, what's the first time this word, phrase, or idea shows up in the Bible? Perhaps, what Jesus, excuse me, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's trying to draw you back to the first time this word, phrase, or idea shows up. Make sense? So uh, for instance, um, John 3.16, the first time love shows up in the Gospel of John, most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know the verse? First time. The question you should be asking, if that's the first time he's mentioning the word love, what's the first mention of love in the Bible? Well, it turns out the first mention of love in the Bible is Genesis 22, verse 2. 
God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now, you know the story. You know that God doesn't follow through with the sacrifice. God says no, actually flips the whole sacrificial system on its head. But you understand by what John is doing when he's drawing you back to Genesis that John is linking love with sacrifice. Later, John will say there's no greater love than this, that he who's, that gives himself up as a sacrifice for those he loves. Right? Love is connected to sacrifice. That make sense? Um, another example, uh, Jesus, Jesus dies, Jesus uh, is buried, and then Jesus on the third day, on Easter Sunday, rises again. Mary comes to the tomb looking for Jesus. Jesus isn't there. She sees another guy. She thinks this other, who actually is Jesus, but plot twist, she thinks he's who? A gardener. Now, you should be asking, what's the first time gardener shows up in the Bible? Well, it turns out, what's the first time a garden is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 1 and 2, there's a garden of Eden. In the very first garden of Eden, we have death enter the story. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Death enters the story. In this garden, death is conquered. In the first story, uh, who is the gardener? Who's got his hands in the soil forming man? God. In this, when Jesus is mistaken for a gardener, what is John saying about Jesus? He's God. You're like, why doesn't he just say that? He did. He just said it like, uh, another example. Uh, <laughs> they go to the tomb, and on the sides of the tomb are two angels facing each other, we read. Raising the question, when is the first time an angel shows up in the Bible? Genesis 3, right? Uh, there's sin, and then God puts an angel to block the garden. The angel's job is to say, stay out, uh, stay away, don't come in. What does the angel say at the garden, the New Testament, at resurrection? Come in and see. But the angels, we're told, are facing each other around the body of where Jesus was supposed to be. They're facing each other around the spot where Jesus was supposed to be. You should be asking the question, where in the Bible are two angels facing each other? Where's the first mention of two angels facing each other? You know the answer? The mercy seat. Where's the mercy seat? On the ark. On the ark of the covenant, on the top of the ark, two angels face each other. God says put two angels facing each other and then call that the mercy seat. Why? Because I'll sit between the angels. My Shekinah glory between the angels. When the two angels on Resurrection Sunday are facing each other, uh, and what is John telling us? God's there. He's God. Okay, does that make sense? This one's easier. Principle of first mention, light and dark. What's the first mention of the, of the words light and dark? Genesis. Jesus is calling us back to the beginning. Jesus is calling us back to the beginning, to the creation story. You want to know how to have ayin tovah in a world as dark and as ugly and as painful as ours. You have to go back to how God wired the whole thing. God, throughout the, book, throughout the first two chapters of Genesis, continues to say the same refrain again and again and again. That refrain, it is good. Tova, it is good. Bad doesn't really enter the story until sin but he's not the author of that, that, the serpent. 
That's a serpent. That's choice. That's the question Genesis forces us to ask is, is God good? And the refrain again and again in Genesis is, yes, he's good. Listen to these words from uh, the old, legendary Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. He talks about Genesis 1 and he says, the Bible starts out with a liturgy of abundance. Genesis 1 is a song of praise for God's generosity. It tells how well the world is ordered. It keeps saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It declares that God blesses, that is, endows with vitality, the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and humankind, and it pictures the creator saying, be fruitful and multiply. Everything in its kind is to multiply, an overflowing goodness that pours from God's creator's spirit. And as you know, the creation ends in Sabbath, God is so overrun with fruitfulness that God says, I've got to take a break from all this. I've got to get out of the office. Isn't that great? I love that. Uh, Now, the Hebrew songwriters picked up on this. They picked up on what Genesis is trying to do. Is God good? Uh, Psalm 104 says this. How many, this is a songbook of the Jewish people. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There are ships that go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And he goes on and on and on. Walter Brueggemann talks about how the Bible starts out his language with a liturgy of abundance. And that is the right word, isn't it? Abundance. Uh, Essentially, what you have at the beginning is if God is good, which is the most important question in the Bible, right? To To the Jewish people, the question is not is is there a God? That seemed obvious. Look around. Like, how do you deny? They said, that's obvious. The question is, what kind of God is God? Is God good? If God is good, then how you view your stuff, you can view it through the lens of Ain Tovah, through a lens of light, and you can continue to say, God, I trust you with it. I trust you with it. I, if God is not good, then all of it is about how do I protect it? How do I keep it from being spoiled? How do I build bigger barns? Jesus When he's trying to help us see how the world has worked, he goes all the way back to the beginning. What is God like? What is God like? Does that make some sense? Uh, Let's let's come at it this way. Um, Perhaps this will make some more sense for those of you who are story-driven people. Uh, So I married an Italian woman, and uh, an Italian woman, Uh, and so when we got married, uh, it's a big family, right? Big family. And uh, then that big family got much bigger as we all started having kids. And so um, there's, you know, there's the big events where you're still making the pasta and the ravioli and all the. Uh, but then uh, what we recognized was there's always an opportunity to celebrate. Um, there's always a birthday party. There's always something. To, like, so the family got, gets together all the time. And so, um, and so that's, a lot, that's a lot of pasta. And there's a lot of little kids. Uh, I kid you not, um, in January. So my, my daughter's birthday is December 18. Then you have Christmas. And then my birthday is the same birth. January 2 is the same birthday as my father-in-law 
and my niece, who has a, a few days later is my mother-in-law's birthday. My dad's birthday is a day after that. My brother-in-law's birthday is three days after that. Uh, and then you have my son's birthday is on the 19th. And then my wife's birthday is on the 22nd, and she's a twin, so there's two of them. Uh, there's a lot. We're, we're poor by the time January's done. <laughs> so we have all these parties. And uh, one of the things we learned as a secret to these parties is, okay, if we can find one dish that all the kids will eat, then the adults will be happy. What we've discovered is one of those dishes is pizza. Pizza. Uh, In particular, the Costco pizzas, the giant ones with my daughter, Lara, like it's as big as her face, but she'll hang it off the plate and kind of, it's awesome. She's just the orange grease. It's awesome. Um, but what my kids have learned, so we'll, we'll, put the, we'll put the pizzas out on whoever's house, whoever's table that we're at. And, you know, they used to have three options. Now there's just two options, um, pepperoni and cheese. And so we'll set them out and kind of stacked next to each other. And the kids will come and they will grab the pizza. My, my kids and all of the cousins will, will come and they'll grab the pizza that they need. And then they'll go sit at their, their, their seats. What we've learned is that these kids aren't grabbing all the pizza, they're letting other kids get the pizza too. They're just, they're not even think about, they're not even thinking about being generous. They're just thinking about themselves in that moment. What they've learned is, well, what happens if we run out of pizza? Here's what they've learned about mom and dad is that mom and dad, if we run out of pizza, because uh, they've come to trust us that we're good, that if we run out of pizza, we'll get them more pizza. They don't have to worry about it. And because of that, they can look at the pizza through an eye of generosity. And they can leave some for everyone else in the family. Now, um, those of you who have worked with kids through the foster care system, who maybe you've adopted a child or you've, you've seen, known somebody who has, you've, you've learned that if kids don't have an upbringing where mom and dad can be trusted, often what happens in this exact moment is they will pile their plates high because they don't know if they're going to get any more. I have a friend who uh, had a child in the foster care system that they had adopted in, and they would discover food under her bed because she would stockpile it under her bed because she didn't know if she was going to eat again. The question at the heart of Genesis is, if God is good, you can see life through a generous eye. And if, you, if, you, if he's so good, you take it so seriously, at some point you forget that you're being generous. You're just living on what you need because you're trusting God will take care of the rest. God is good. God is good. What Jesus is doing in this story is he's trying to get us to understand the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. I love this line out of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 50 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, God says, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Scarcity says we don't have enough. Abundance says God has pizza in a thousand hills, right? God's got enough. We can trust him. He know, we know the source of more. We know the source of more. Doesn't mean we don't have to be wise with it. Doesn't mean we don't have to, but we know the source of more. Now, is God good? Is God good? Is God good? The question at the heart of what Jesus is saying seems to be, ayin tovah versus ayin ra'ah, how do you see the world? If you see the world through a lens of generosity, it will allow you to, the question you'll ask is, how can I build bigger corners? How do I invest my excess in things that matter? Uh, If you see the world through a lens of scarcity, the question always is, how do I protect myself from the vermin? 
How do I make sure that they don't get in, whatever they are? How do I protect what I have? How do I make sure that nobody else takes what I have? I need to build bigger barns. I was, I was looking at all of this, trying to figure out like the drawings and how it fits together. Um, and this was on Thursday, and I was, I, the sermon was done, right? And so I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, okay. Um, but then I'm watching the news, and I'm seeing the Russia-Ukraine stuff play out. And, um, and asking the question, legit question was, do we talk through this or do we talk through that? Because um, it feels wrong to not talk about that. And, uh, and then I was thinking through this and praying through this, and a story, actually a couple, that, uh, a couple of people, um, and their life story that I hadn't thought about in a few years now came back to me. Um, it's uh, one of the first older couples I'd ever met in ministry. I was 25 at the time when I met a couple named uh, Mert and Frida Wabek. Mert and Frida Wabek. There's a picture of Mert and Frida. Um, Mert and Frida. When I met Mert and Frida, uh, Mert was... Uh, Mert was about 90, he would go on to live to 95, he's about 93 at the time, and Frida was 88, she would go on to live till she was 90. And uh, Mert was, um, yeah, that brings back memories. Um, Mert lived in a retirement home in Zealand known as Royal Park. You guys know where Royal Park is? You know where the Burger King is? And, okay, so he lived in Royal Park, and she, uh, Frida lived just down the street a little bit. Um, she lived just on the street because she was, uh, she needed some assisted living because she, over the last five years, had been struck with Alzheimer's disease and was losing her memories. By the time I got to know them, her memories were almost all gone. They were gone. Um, and so uh, Mert would visit her. This was his wife of 75 years, and Mert would visit her. And, uh, and one, one day we get a call in from one of, the ki- one of Mert's kids, and they say, hey, we're, we're we got some issues. Mert's still driving to visit Frida, and we don't want Mert driving. You, we do not want Mert driving. None of us want Mert driving. Uh, and he's like, can, can you help us figure out how to get Mert to visit Frida every day? He's going to go. If, you, if we don't figure it out, he's going to go either way. He's not going to stay back. He's going to go. So can you help us out? So one of my first jobs as a pastor was figuring out how to get uh, transportation from Royal Park to this assisted living facility for uh, Mert Wabeck. And uh, Thursdays were the day I couldn't find anyone else, and so Thursdays became my day to drive Mert to assisted care and to spend the afternoon with Mert. And you've, maybe you've read the book by Mitch Album called Tuesdays with Maury. Remember that book? Uh, this was Thursdays with Mert, and it was very similar. Um, we, we'd start by, uh, by chatting kind of as he got ready. Um, and, you know, things were all quite slow, and so we'd, we'd begin chatting about life on the farm in Vreesland, Michigan. And um, he, would, he would tell these stories about where he remembered when men were real men, which is slightly offensive as I sat there, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> and he would, talk about how, uh, he, he would talk about how he remembered when Vreesland was small before it was a city. And I'm like, I'm not going to correct you, but okay. It's like a four-way stop in a co-op, but okay. Um, and well, we'd have these conversations about life back in the day, and he'd tell me these incredible stories, just incredible stories of how to, to get to church, they would heat these bricks on the fireplace and then put them in the carriage, um, and, so they, that, and then they would sit on the brick, and when the brick was no longer warm, that's when the sermon was done in the winter. Isn't that interesting? And so like, that's when, like, if I keep rambling on, you, you guys literally are getting cold, so uh, i got to wrap it up. Um, he'd, he'd tell me all these incredible Incredible stories. Um, but then at 3 o'clock every single day, uh, he needed to leave. And 
uh, he would get in my car and we would drive down to this assisted living facility and uh, he'd wear the same tan coat and uh, he'd come in and he'd say hello to Frida and Frida uh, didn't recognize him. She didn't know, she, I don't think I had one, one moment in the entire time I drove in there that she even knew who he was. There was one moment where she thought I was him um, like she was trapped in a former, it was really sad actually. She, and so he would just play along. He'd play along. Um, but then he would reach in his coat every day and he'd pull out of his coat a napkin and in the napkin a brownie. He, um, his wife, Frida, loved brownies. And so he would smuggle it out of Royal Park's cafeteria, put it in his coat, and every day he would bring his wife a brownie. And I'd ask him about it and he said, uh, she doesn't get happy by seeing me anymore. I don't know if she ever did. But he said, she gets happy by these. And so I save her my brownie. And, uh, and this went on. Um, he would visit her uh, for five or seven years, somewhere in there, uh, every day as, she, as her memory slipped. And, uh, and then Frida, in the winter of 2011, Frida passed. And um, I remember the funeral service. I remember all, I remember all of it. And, um, and I had a decision. Do I keep visiting Mert or not? Because my purpose was to drive him. Uh, to Frida, and she's no longer with us. And, and I made the decision, that of course I visit. Of course I visit Mert. And so I kept showing up on Thursdays. Uh, the difference was he would no longer be wearing his tan coat. He would just be sitting in the chair, no longer waiting to go. Um, but I kept trying to talk about the same stuff. And I noticed that the energy in him was just gone. Like the light in his eyes had dwindled as we talk about these same stories. Um, now, if I'm honest, one of my biggest regrets of that season was I worked really hard to avoid talking about Frida because I didn't want, it to, I didn't want to make him sad. I, I didn't want it to be uncomfortable. So I talked about farm life and Vriesland and I talked about the new development happening in Vriesland and he would nod along and he would engage a little bit. But I didn't want to talk about Frida because I didn't want to make him sad. And what I recognize now looking back is I missed an opportunity for a 95-year-old man to teach a 25-year-old man what love looks like. Uh, there was one day I showed up and I asked him the questions and he said nothing. He like shut down. He's like, I'm not talking to you. And so finally I said, um, can we talk about Frida? Like, honestly, it's probably just because I was uncomfortable with the silence. Um, but I said, can we talk about Frida? And his eyes lit back up. My question was, tell me what it's like. 75 years, tell me what it's like. And he began telling story after story after story after story um, about how they dated, how they met, um, I mean, they got married. It would be illegal to get married at the age they got married at, I think. Uh, just the story after story after story. 75 years of marriage. 75 years of marriage. And for the last five years, how he would visit from 90 to 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, he would visit his wife who didn't remember him at all. And, he, and we, we talked. Um, and I asked him, like, what kept you showing up? I know, and he's like, well, I had to give her the brownie. Uh, this week, I was looking at my whiteboard thinking about, like, how do we, what does this have to do with um, the Ukraine and Russia and how we think about war? And then it clicked that not only does Jesus connect light and dark, how, how we see the beginning affects how we see this moment, but it seems as though what Jesus is also doing, remember what Jesus says when he talks about storing up your treasures? Where does he say we're supposed to store our treasures? In heaven. It seems as though what Jesus also talks about is the end. That 
how we see the beginning, is God good, affects how we see this moment, but also how we see the end. If we're just going to rot in a hole, if in the end they throw us in a hole and they carry on with their lives, if in the end, like, that's all it is, that'll affect how generous we are now, too. Because why wouldn't I blow it all on red? <laughs> like, if that's how it ends, then why not just spend as much as we can now? If, the, if that's how it ends, why wouldn't we all hoard? But what seems what Jesus is trying to suggest in this moment is how, if, if God is good, we can trust him with our resources now. And if God is still good, if we hold to the enduring hope that this is not all there is, this life does not, is not all there is, well, then we can invest in bigger corners. And where are the bigger corners? Frida needed a brownie. I think what Mert was trying to tell me, well, um, I think what Mert was trying to tell me was the secret of life as we gathered. I think he was trying to remind me what really matters. We spend our lives, me more guilty than any, thinking a lot about this. Thinking a lot about, I, we, I did my taxes last week, thinking a lot about this. How do I protect this stuff? How do we build this stuff? It's not all inherently bad thoughts. It's necessary to survive thoughts. Um, but we spend a lot of time building businesses, running, in my case, churches, raising all of this stuff to survive. We think a lot about this stuff. Um, we watch a world change in front of our very eyes. Uh, but in the end, what truly matters is how we spend, how big are our corners? What does this have to do with Ukraine, Russia, war, COVID, pandemics, um, loss of family members, loss of loved ones? I would say you and I are here. We have a choice for how we see it all. And the invitation of Jesus is to trust God with all of it. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, um, would you remind us again that you are bigger than the biggest struggles, problems, or issues we face? Lord, would you help us to be wise? Would you help us to make good, good decisions with the things we've been given? Lord, would you help us to look at our own field and make those hard calls about how, how big do we make our corners? How much, how much more can we trust you with our generosity? Lord, help us to be wise in that. Uh, and Lord, we pray that the excess, you would remind us that we are partnering with you in caring for the very real needs of a very real world. Lord, would you, um, would you bless us so that we can bless others? And Lord, would you remind us again and again of the sacred task you've given us? Uh, Jesus, would your hand be upon Russia? Or the, would your hand be upon the Russia-Ukraine war? Uh, Lord, would your hand be upon the victims in Ukraine, the victims that even right now are terrified for their lives? Uh, and Lord, would you give your church creative ways to see? Uh, Jesus, we pray all this in your name. And everybody said... As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. 
And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.